changing and working around COVID-19. We are so excited to be here. Uh, we are so excited to have all of you sending in your questions, your comments, and your energy. I would like to welcome with you our first guest, Dr. Numbulelo Bule. Welcome, 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 Dr. Mugela. She is joining us from South Africa. She is a member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19. She heads the Department of Internal Medicine at KwaZulu-Natal. She is in the Nelson Mandela School of Medicine, and she's also a mentor. She is someone who I admire and someone who has been working since the beginning of the HIV epidemic. She is a leader not only internationally throughout South Africa, but she's a woman who remembers her journey as a girl and works tirelessly to lift the community, partner with the community, and let the community guide her practice as a physician, as a professor, and as a womanist. Dr. Mugela, we are excited and elated to have you. Thank you for making the time. If you could, just tell us a little bit more about you, your work, and why you choose to challenge this Women's History Month. You are very welcome. I think we still have you on mute. Ebony for that very, very warm introduction and thank you to BT Women for having me again. So my journey from growing up in a township called Kwamashu in Devon, where I went to school, where I experienced the life of growing in a township you know, uh, firsthand and the memories of it, uh, uh, you know, move me to do everything that I do. And, um, and every, in everything that I do, I remember, you know, what is happening in the township that I grew up and other townships as well. And this drives me to, you know, towards uh, a vision of bringing back all the skills, all the expertise that we have in higher centers, right back into the community for us to be able to, to make a difference in the lives of people and in the lives of girls and women in the community. You muted, Ebony. Thank you so much, Dr. Magula. Uh, we would like to now introduce Fahe Karubo. Fahe comes from Nairobi, Kenya. Fahe is an advocate for sexually reproductive rights and health. Fahe is bringing visibility to the needs, the voices, and the concerns of women, girls, uh, lesbians, bisexual, transgender, um, gender nonconforming. Fahe believes in inclusion and really making sure that she uses her platforms not only to bring her voices and her vision, but also the voice and vision of the community. Uh, so, Fahe, I know that you are a member of She Decides. I know that you are 
in a lot of spaces, really championed it for women and girls. Why do you choose to challenge? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, Ebony, and I'm happy to be here. So as Ebony has introduced me, my, has introduced me my name is Fahe Kerubom, and I choose to challenge these leadership positions because as a masculine presenting woman, there are a lot of challenges that we go through. So, and that comes from, let's just talk about health in itself. Before we get to leadership, one person has to be healthy for them to even compete in these spaces. But as a masculine presenting woman, we do not have those equal spaces to even compete, to even, we do not even have places to get these services from. Our voices are not listened to. So that is why as Fahe Kerubo, I'm here to share this voice, an important voice that has always not been there in the table. And I'm really happy to be representing the masculine presenting women from Kenya and not only Kenya, globally. Thank you, Ebony. Thank you so much, Fahe. Thank you, Dr. Mugela. Right now, we know that there have been 128 million cases of COVID globally. And so both of you, your work has centered around HIV, around sexual and reproductive health and rights. And somehow, sometimes we speak of COVID in isolation, but we know that there is an impact and it has brought us in some cases to an impasse when we look at services and access for women and girls. As we think about choosing to challenge, making sure more women and girls have better access, not reduced access, what are some of the things that we're thinking around COVID? UNFPA reports that 12 million women have had a disruption to contraception services. And when we think about contraception services, we know contraception services go hand in hand with sexual transmission, um, sexual and reproductive health services, sexual transmission infection screening, um, HIV prevention, comprehensive sexuality education. So Dr. Mugela, working um, at KwaZulu-Natal as a professor, as a physician, what do you see when we're thinking about disruption? It's reported that up to 20% of services in South Africa, as well as Mozambique, have been impacted around contraception and reproductive health care. That is absolutely true, Ebony. There has been right from the beginning disruption of services when the pandemic started. And yes, the pandemic caught us unawares, which is unfortunate. And I think one of the uh, main actions and lessons that we must take out of this is that we have to be pandemic ready at all times. So that is a lesson that needs to be taken out of this so that something that happened with COVID-19 pandemic does not happen again. And uh, what has happened is that there's been a lot of focus on addressing the pandemic at the expense of all other, um, you know, health programs. Uh, so this is something that we actually need to highlight and advocate uh, about that we cannot while we try to win the fight, the battle against the COVID-19 pandemic, that we actually lose sight, lose sight of all the other programs. We had targets that were set around ending um, HIV as a public health threat. 
by the year 2030, targets that had to be met by 2020. And a whole lot of services have actually been curtailed while we attend to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it is, it's, it's crucial that we don't lose our targets. And it's essential also that we throw in all the necessary um, resources towards ending the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, in uh, the shortest possible time. We cannot delay ending the pandemic because it then, uh, you know, delays us in achieving all these other targets. And especially when it comes to, you know, uh, the health of women and girls, which also goes beyond the health services. It goes into the gender-based violence that women and girls are exposed to. And so all of these are, are, are factors that must be considered. Hence, it is important that women and girls are actually brought onto the decision-making table so that their voices are heard. And when all of these decisions on ending the COVID-19 pandemic, on ending all of the societal ills are discussed, that the voices of women and girls are heard. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor McGullet. Bahe, I'd like to bring it to you. So when you're thinking about what is the immediate impact that you've seen in your community around disruption to sexual and reproductive health services uh, due to COVID. Um, what are you seeing? How are women, young women, girls coping? Uh, projections from UNFPA say that up to 60% of services, uh, particularly in Kenya, have been disrupted for both women and their children. Um, what have you been seeing? How have women been responding? And what's the impact look like? Well, uh, Ebony, I'll say that um, my community comprises of adolescent young girls and women, and this is in all the diversities. When I say in all the diversities, I mean the LGBTQ community is also a part of it. So with the COVID-19, access to contraception, access to comprehensive sexuality education in itself has been a problem. Access to services, for example, right now we are having a crisis of ARVs. Like, there are stockouts of ARVs countrywide in this country. So I'm wondering, like for young people currently, these are young people who are termed as unstable patients for the ones who are living with HIV. Right now we have stockouts of ARVs. They do not have this medication. What then happens to them? Besides, besides the ARVs, we are seeing that there's a lot of, a lot of corrective rape going, happening. We have teen pregnancies happening to young girls in our community. And all the focus has gone to addressing COVID-19. It's as if these issues were not there, the strides that you've made into curbing these challenges that have been there in the community. It's, it's like they've been washed down because of COVID-19. So for me, I'm not seeing anything good out of the COVID-19 measures that are there. And for me, it's just a bleeding heart because we are losing people. Right now, it's a crisis after another. Yeah, we have a pandemic, but we're having a pandemic of teen pregnancies. We're having a pandemic of stockouts of medication and haven't even spoke about the masculine presenting communities, women in, this, in the community. So for me, it's a bleeding heart, Ebony. 
It's interesting, Bahe. Here we sit in March 2021. One year ago, Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced in April 2020 the pandemic is having a devastating effect, social and economic consequences for girls and women. We heard the head of the World Health Organization a year ago say, any response for COVID-19 must be gender sensitive and gender responsive. And here we sit, Women's History Month, March 2021, and we still see that we haven't connected the dots. UNFPA estimates that 1.4 million unplanned pregnancies will happen as a result of COVID-19. UN Women talks about the shadow epidemic of violence against women and COVID-19. So what is happening? Um, Professor Mugala, I'd like to bring it back to you. You sit uh, on the COVID committee uh, for COVID-19 as a ministerial advisory uh, member. What are you all doing to make sure that there is a comprehensive and inclusive approaches that are intersectional, that are inclusive, and that work across the spheres of women's lives and girls' experiences um, as you all are developing your responses to COVID? If you would, could you share with us a bit about that? So, Ebony, the, the way that this advisory committee works is that it responds to questions that are being posed where an advice is required uh, from the, our National Department of Health. And then we then look at literature and evidence to inform those questions that are being directly, uh, you know, uh, asked. And, and then this then guides the National Department of Health on how to handle uh, issues that relate specifically to managing the COVID-19. So there is a room to actually expand to address issues, you know, gender sensitive issues and, 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 and the questions that you raise. There is room for that, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned, that it, it's really the work of the, of, of the committee really centers around um, questions that are, that are posed by the Department of Health. Fahe, you talked about what's not addressed. Have you seen any good practices in your community that are responding not only to COVID symptoms, COVID prevention, COVID education, but that are also looking to integrate responses to um, HIV prevention, HIV treatment, unplanned pregnancies, um, SRHR services, comprehensive sexuality education. Have you seen any models at the community level that are really addressing uh, the culmination of factors that COVID now brings out? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I'd say that there are good practices in the society currently, and that I'll say it's from um, non-profit organizations, not really through the government, but these are strides I'll say that have been mechanisms that have been put in the society that help with curbing these issues. For example, we have um, a hotline called Nenanabinti. This hotline is for young people, young women and girls who really are facing these challenges, who really want safe abortion services, 
who want mental health services, who want contraception, who want generally health, sexual health, health and sexual and health, sexual and reproductive health services. So for me, apart from that, we have I've seen Usikime. It is a gender gender-based violence kind of response mechanism that is there in the society. It's a safe house where our girls, the teen pregnant girls who do not have a place to go, they can have a shelter there. The women who have been beaten by their husbands, children who have been raped, you know, those are those are some of the mechanisms I can see. I can refer young people to currently in Kenya. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, so it's great to hear about the grassroots responses. Um, Dr. Mugela, what about in South Africa? What about particularly in KwaZulu-Natal? Um, what efforts are being underway to really look at the intersections, not only of COVID, uh, but with the other culminating factors uh, leading to uh, poor health or poor access for women and girls? So there are actions being taken, you know, work by civil society, by non-for-profit organization at different organizations, uh, partners of the Department of Health that look at, you know, different aspects of, of health at community level and, um, and, and support the Department of Health in KwaZulu-Natal as well as in other parts of, 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 of South Africa. And um, the fact that we still see, you know, cases of gender-based violence in different forms uh, from, you know, the, the, what you, you, can't, you can't describe any gender-based violence as mild, but from non-fatal perhaps would be the way to describe it too fatal. And the fact that we still see that, I think, highlights the reality that we have a serious pandemic. And in the context of, of, of the pandemic, uh, you then have a situation where, especially when we go in, you know, under lockdown in South Africa, we've gone through different levels of lockdown where uh, women would actually be locked down with perpetrators. So those are some of the of the realities where we actually need uh, different sectors of society to be stepping in and um, alleviating these problems. Where there is problems, you know, right now the economy has actually uh, been hit very hard. A lot of people have lost jobs. Women are caretakers, they're breadwinners, and with the current uh, economic climate, they actually are in very difficult uh, positions where they must still provide uh, for their own families. And yes, government is making provision with uh, some allowances, which uh, you know one doesn't know to what how far those allowances go. And there are also other faith-based organizations that work towards providing, you know, food and, and different uh, forms of support at community level and other non-for-profit organizations also that are working towards providing many medications in the community in different ways. So yes, there's a lot of work that is happening at community level, but there's room for more to be done.
Thank you. It's interesting. We're hearing about the uptake in gender-based violence, violence against women, violence against girls, and we've been here before. I remember sitting here nearly two years ago, looking at the impacts of Ebola. What did it mean to be um, locked in with family members, with uh, family friends, with people who were perpetrating abuse right in the home? Fahe, um, you spoke about corrective rape. You spoke about also the violence that's happening as a result um, of COVID-19. Um, and, and I want to pose it to you. How do we support uh, both young women and women um, who may be economically vulnerable because of COVID, who may be also, as you said, um, Professor, um, living in lockdown and um, in places where they don't have readily act, ready access to support? How do we, one, get the message out? How do we, two, propel investment in the types of support services needed? And also, how do we help um, get messages directly to women and girls to address the violence? Um, Bye. Well, thank you, Ebony. For me, I think, am I audible? Yes, you're audible. Thank you. Hello. Uh, we hear you clearly. You're clear. Uh, all right. All right. Yeah, for me, I think the best way to address this is working together. Yeah, it, it's working together with all the organizations that are there that are addressing addressing these issues of women. Working together as a team and having to support victims. We stop blaming victims for what happens to them because if we blame these victims, we will not have them speaking out. We will not know these issues are happening to them. When a woman comes out or when a girl comes out and says, this is happening to me, please listen, support this person. It's not all about resources at the end of the day. Listening to this is very important to bring out this kind of happening in society for them to be even addressed. So for me, my big take home for me to everybody, my crying out, my appeal to everyone is to listen to victims, support victims, condemn all these violences that is happening to women. Stop asking women to stay in marriages that are not working. It's, it's better having your daughter back home than having them dead. So for me, I'll call out. My appeal is listening and supporting. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting. We're thinking about women and girls. So many inequities um, around uh, violence, around as as Professor Bugala talked about, unpaid care work. I looked at this new phenomenon. What actually COVID has just put a spotlight on things that have been pre-existing at the heart of many communities. Um, for women due to lack of policies, due to lack of economic opportunities, due to poor education. Um, and as you said, Fahe, um, the role of culture, the role of religion, what messages are women and girls getting about being self-protective, but also what messages are going um, to men and boys about violence, about manhood, about um, what it means to honor and respect women's rights, um, to take up space, to be healthy and free. We have a question coming in from Irene in Kenya. Um, what kind of support um, do we have for women who really want to take up leadership roles during the COVID, who want to address some of these issues? Um, again, uh, Professor Bogala talked about many women are on the front lines um, doing the work, providing services, but a lot of times this is unpaid care work. 
So how do we support uh, vibrant voices of women and women's leadership? Um, I think the challenge is actually on women also that have been able to, you know, get into, you know, get a seat at the table that we actually must be the ones who agitate even more and challenge the, the status quo so that um, we get the voice of the woman to sound louder, uh, to cover all the issues that need to be heard. You know, there's issues around stigma that uh, women experience and, and they end up um, not coming out as, as Faye alluded. And so I think um, firstly, we need, you know, op op opportunities around education, you know, need to be opened up so that um, women are strengthened and empowered to take up positions of, of leadership uh, in the medium to long term. Uh, and, and, and in the short term, I think the, the, the role of mentorship also needs to be highlighted and strengthened and also support of those women that have a seat around the decision-making table. Support is needed because often you find that uh, women, unfortunately, sometimes women don't support one another. So it's important that women support one another so that every single woman actually, uh, it becomes you know, genetic that as a woman, you are there to support other women as well. And, you know, it's natural that we're supporting everybody in the community. It's, it's, it's in our uh, DNA makeup. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not always that we're there to support one another. So I think to get women, more women into leadership, we need to strengthen mentorship. We need to strengthen support at all levels, including support for those women that are already at the decision-making table. And those women that are uh, uh, sitting around that table need to agitate for other women also and issues that affect other women to be heard. You muted, uh, Ebony. Absolutely, 70% of women worldwide are providing services. Um, we're talking about care work, health work, and we are seeing still tremendous disparity between women who are holding political office um, and being able to not only be at the lines calling for advocacy, but we also need to create space and opportunity for women to have not only the political momentum, but the political power and actually have the seat at the table in positions where we can really affect change. Uh, we have a question coming in and someone has said, um, I'm from Kenya and I agree 100% with what Fahe says in terms of showing access to reproductive health and care services, even in the pandemic, our government tries, although a lot of the work uh, affirms, reaffirms that the needs for access to reproductive health care services has been solely by community-based and um, NGO services that are targeting women and girls. Mental health of the adolescent girl has been a forgotten and critical issue. Adolescent girls go through extreme violence and silence, and perhaps when they're caught in between two pandemics of HIV and COVID. And so they're asking, what, what do we say to young women 
who are already trying to negotiate HIV services. Services have been restricted or limited, um, and they may be provided by community-based organizations, but there's not robust um, government funding. How do we also bring the mental health piece in? How do we look to support young women, uh, women and girls who really need comprehensive responses? Um, are there messages around mental health and what kind of supports available in Kenya and South Africa, or what recommendations do you have? Bye, Dr. Mugela. Oh, thank you, Ebony. For me, I think um, we have organizations that have that have these services through linkages. We've really seen our women and girls access these services. So for me, I'll say um, let us keep on referring, let us keep on having partnerships. And my appeal is goes to their government because you cannot rely on donor-funded money because, again, these are monies that are being redirected. They have their own purposes. So if we can all advocate for domestic resource mobilization, domestic resources to be invested in this, in this health facilities, facilities, acquire these commodities, it will be really, really great. So for me, I'd say in as much as we have partnerships with other different organizations and services out here, partners, I'd really appeal that we advocate for domestic resources as well. So the appeal goes to the leaders, our leaders in positions of power. They should do something in redirecting, allocating resources, not even redirecting, allocating enough resources to cater for these services, other than just minding with COVID-19 alone and forgetting about the services that have been there, the programs that have been running when it comes to HIV response, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to con contraception and all that. So for me, it's an appeal to our governments, really. Thank you so much. Um, Professor Magola, there's a question coming in for you, um, similar to what was asked to Fahe. When we look at South Africa, are funds being redirected um, or are there new funds being generated? How are How is South Africa's government and how is your institution um, coping and contending with the uh, twin epidemics of both HIV as well as COVID and making sure that no one's getting left behind and that services are staying consistent and comprehensive. All right. Okay. Thank you. So um, just picking up from the last question and, and, and roping it in with this one is that South Africa actually lent a, a difficult, a painful lesson because Nobody knew anything about the COVID-19 pandemic as it was unfolding. And so the initial response was to halt other services um, and then focus on COVID-19. That was the initial response. And, um, and that response also was also combined with a reaction from the community of fear where the community feared coming into facilities uh, to be for potential exposure to COVID-19. So it was a combination of the government response as well as the reaction from the community and the action of fear. And so by the time that the first part of the pandemic had gone through, you know, the first wave, if I can call it that, and we reflected, we then realized that the approach of curtailing other services 
only to focus on COVID pandemic had unintended you know, negative impacts. And so moving forward from there, the idea was then to ensure that all other services are provided while we attend to COVID-19. So there was government's uh, response, but the damage was already felt where services had already been curtailed. But the problem continues now because the fear in the community remains. Where services have already been opened up, um, it's now the fears that are there about this disease where actually uh, people that have been infected will not step forward uh, and that's part of that problem. It relates to the stigma that they fear you know, to face where in the community, if you are known that you have this infection, you know, people fear for their lives uh, in terms of what people could do for to them. So it's a combination of factors. Uh, and now the services, even though they are open, the uptake is poor because people are scared to come in. They think that they're going to pick up infection in the clinics. Uh, people are scared to come into hospital when they are sick. Even to be managed for COVID-19, people are coming in when they are too, too sick and too far advanced, you know, which is also a problem. In terms, I also want to touch on the point that FIRE made around funding from, uh, non, you know, donor partners and so on, and say that um, government also needs to uh, be active, proactive, in uh, how these funding sources are used so that they're not just there to address a problem that is being funded for, but also take that opportunity to build capacity so that there is continuity because we always know, we know that always the funding ends, you know, it has a lifespan. So before that funding stream ends, there needs to be a way wherein people in the local sector setting have been capacitated so that the work that has been achieved will then be carried uh, forward. Uh, in terms of the funding in South Africa, yes, there has been some special funding. I can't tell you details because I'm not in that space, but yes, there is some special funding to just supplement uh, resources uh, because this was a new problem, new hospitals had to be built, repurposed stuff, you know, this uh, pro uh, personal protective equipment, all of this is something that was new that had uh, to be funded for as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So I, I hear so many overlapping and intersecting things that need to happen. So one is, as Fahe and you have both underscored, is that one, we need we need to continue what's working. We need to continue the grassroots responses. We need to continue the community responses. We need to continue to work with organizations where there's trust and make those investments. But we also need some action from government. And the action needs to not just uh, redistribute funds, but we need new funding, specific funding. But we also hear that funding needs to be accompanied by messages that are giving factual, accurate information that helps people, one, reduce stigma, but two, also reduce fear. People are saying that they need one, and we know that there's a real desire for people to continue to engage in uh, HIV testing, 
in access to contraception services in STI screening, but also we want people to be able to feel safe to come in and access services. And not only feel safe, we need to be able to make sure that those environments are safe. And I think these are questions that continue to pop up as we talk about, as we think about vaccines, who has access, um, when would they be available? Um, what does that look like? What is the messaging? Um, and how do we continue to take public health approaches that don't only build fear, but also build confidence in the healthcare sector that allow people to access services when they're actually available? Well, hey, there's a question coming in as we're thinking about um, making investments, as we're thinking about um, accessing grassroots services, are these services set to include um, women, girls, persons who are non-gender conforming and people across the LGBTQ spectrum of women, um, are these services really created a space uh, for access? Are they inclusive? Are they safe? Mm -hmm. And are they not only bringing messages of, of COVID, but also bringing messages of positive um, gender identity and personal wholeness and wellness? Well, hey, if you would, that's coming from Elida in Kenya. Uh, yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the linkages, the linkages that I've given, the partnerships that I've given of, for example, Nena Nabinti and uh, Usikime, for Nena Nabinti, it's very, very diverse. It's very inclusive for anyone, whether you're gender non-conforming, whether you're lesbian, whether you whichever, it doesn't matter, regardless of your gender or your sex, these services are there for you. All you need to do, and all you need to do is just reach out because even calling the hotline is free. So yeah, Elida, this are some of the services that are very inclusive. And again, I'll add that our governments or our health facilities really need to have these services very inclusive because yes, we have youth-friendly facilities in Kenya, but unfortunately not many people access them, go for services from there. So that tells you, yes, we have, the, we have the facilities that give the services, but because they're not inclusive for one reason or another, young people do not feel comfortable to go get those services from there. So again, I'll ask this with Nena Nabinti is, and other partners, they're willing. It's very, they're very inclusive, but without the support of the government, um, they're really, really limited to, you know, we, can, we cannot compare what the capacity it can hold to the whole country. So again, I'll appeal to the government to make the government, the free services very inclusive for everyone to access them. So because my question would go out there, why do we have youth-friendly services that are not working? Thank you. It's very important not only to have services, but have services that actually are accessible, that are community-friendly, that are person-centered. So we're thinking about that. Um, I want to bring it back to you, uh, Professor Magula. Somebody is asking, we have a question coming in from Namibia. Um, what does it look like as we're making this transition? As you said, in the South Africa, the government has pivoted and really looked at how do we bring back services into the fold? How do we make sure um, that we're not compromising um, HIV, TB, uh, reproductive health in exchange for COVID, but how do we take a more comprehensive approach? Um, what does that look like now as we're starting to see vaccines, uh, vaccination programs roll out across uh, the globe? What does that look like for South Africa? So it actually is pretty much work in progress. Um, so on the one hand, 
we have to be uh, getting ready, getting prepared for a possibility of another uh, surge in COVID-19 infections. And so what it means is that we as a community, as the country, we actually need to be working together uh, on efforts to ensure that we don't get another surge. And that you know, uh, is about an, a, a adhering to government regulations of wearing masks and uh, adhering to social distance uh, uh, precautions and, and, and sanitizing and, and, and also quarantine and isolation. So that is on the one side of, of the pandemic where, you know, while the vaccine program unfolds, which we have not actually started the rollout yet, so while we wait to start the vaccine rollout, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we remain at risk of another surge in infections. And then we work together as community to ensure that we don't get another surge. At the same time, government is working, you know, um, we heard in the news yesterday about huge loads of vaccines that are going to be delivered. Uh, so that rollout is going to be starting very soon. That's going to mean that uh, healthcare workers also are going to be um, focusing on vaccinating uh, uh, the community. So while we're vaccinating, we also have to be ensuring that we are preventing new infections and we have to ensure that if there are any new infections that are occurring, we're reducing, uh, uh, you know, morbidity and we're reducing numbers of people dying and or rather preventing deaths. So it's a balancing act, you know, looking at uh, preventing new infections from uh, precautionary standard measures, even before we get the vaccine to us. And then we then uh, re reduce infections uh, from, you know, uh, vaccinations or complications of infections from vaccinations and then dealing with those that are already infected and reducing deaths. And there's also issues of, um, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy or problems with accepting vaccines. So that's also another piece of the puzzle that must also be dealt with. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that mirrors a lot of what we're seeing across the globe. So it's one thing to have the actual vaccine, and we've been really grateful to the work of um, UNA's Executive Director, Wayne Bayanima, who has been calling for the people's vaccine and to make the vaccine available. One is an issue of gender, one is an issue of equity, um, one is an issue of public health and making sure that everybody has access um, to live safe, to be self, to be, to be healthy and to take intervention um, as we look at COVID-19. Uh, but as you stated, um, the vaccine will be one piece of it. We still need to make sure that we have the right messaging so people understand and educated, have the health literacy, and also making sure that people know that um, even as the vaccine comes and even as we're seeing here in the US, even as the vaccine is available, that we still need to reinforce um, preventative measures around social distancing, um, around making sure that people are wearing their PPE, wearing their masks, um, and making smart decisions because 
it is one of many interventions as we're moving through and learning about COVID. Um, Fahe, thoughts about um, what's happening in Kenya, not only around actually having the vaccine available, but what is the conversation been at the community level about vaccine and about engagement? Well, um, in the communities, people do not understand what this vaccine entails. Um, actually, that, now that you mentioned it, just of, as of yesterday, there was a conflict of whether young people or maybe people should be having this vaccine or not. There's a lot of misconception about this vaccine. And so that is why even if it's there, not so many people are going for it. So there's very low turnout, especially among young people, among even elderly people who do not really understand or they do not have the right information to make this right decision to go for it. So, yeah, I think we really need a lot of advocacy around it, a lot of messaging, as you said, for people to uptake this vaccine. It can be there, but the uptake is very low. So as we think about Women's History Month and we're thinking about choosing to challenge, um, as the vaccine is new, as COVID, we're still only one year into it. It's so important that women are in leadership positions. We've been fortunate to have you two here on B-Team Women, uh, but also thinking about what are spaces in your community? Uh, Professor Mugella, you're on the advisory committee. Uh, Fahe, you've been speaking on lots of different platforms to help educate your community but we need to continue to look to efforts that allow women's voices to be heard, to be a part of the conversation. One, uh, not because we may be experts on COVID-19, but we are experts on our communities. Uh, we do bring public health experience. We do bring knowledge about what it means, whether it's going through HIV, whether it's going through Ebola, whether it's going through um, the work that you've done in the past, uh, Professor Mugala on TB, uh, whether we're thinking about social um, and economic norms that we work through and shift through every day. Um, Winnie Bayanima has advised that a global pack vaccine apartheid could be coming if we don't ensure that everybody has access, that we're putting people over profit. So we want to make sure that women are there um, as we talk about what it means around eliminating vaccine hesitancy, what it means around increasing um, health literacy and what it means of showing women that we actually have options, that, that we have choices, and that we can also really, really continue to work to shift the trajectory, not only of our health, but our rights, our communities, and the way that we live and exist. Professor Magola, I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, so I think one lesson that we have to learn out of this whole entire pandemic is that this pandemic has come to shine light on problems that we have lived with since time immemorial. And we have to take a lesson that yes, a vaccine will prevent people from developing complications. But the vaccine is not going to take away the social ills that have been there all along. In South Africa, our biggest killer is tuberculosis. The attention that COVID-19 has received to prevent people from 
dying from COVID-19 or from acquiring COVID-19, those same messages, if they were there before this pandemic came up, a lot of lives would have been saved. So we can't come out of this pandemic without lessons that will save more people from dying from tuberculosis and other respiratory infections, from dying from HIV, from dying from diabetes and hypertension and heart disease. We can't come out of the COVID-19 pandemic without having learned those lessons. And unfortunately, while the COVID-19 vaccine is going to reduce the numbers of people that would potentially develop a severe disease and die, the vaccine is not going to take away all of those illnesses, all of those social ills. It's not going to take them away, and we have to learn that lesson. This generation has to learn a lesson out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you. Fahed? Uh, Ebony, for me, I'll say, I'll still echo what my colleague has just said. With the pandemic, it has really brought a lot of issues on broad daylight. We need to have these discussions. We need to, because with the COVID-19, it's not going away. The lifestyles have changed. People are going to live in their houses. Are we going to live with perpetrators? What is going to happen to perpetrators? You know, how are we going to handle mental health that is actually a problem to every each one of each one of us? You know, so for me, I'll say it's for us to just look at the pandemic and be holistic about what is happening and really mean are we trying to be politically correct or do we really mean to make change? for our people, and especially for adolescent young girls and women in all their diversities. Because with the pandemic, we've seen the most affected are women and girls. You know, so we can actually feel it. We are feeling it. We've been reading in books and all that, but with the pandemic, we are now experiencing it. We are living it. So for me, I'll challenge every each one person out there, whether you're in a leadership position or not, what are you doing in your small capacity? What are you doing to make to create change. So Ebony, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Thank you both. And what I've heard you say is that we can't discuss COVID isolation. We have to look at when people are talking about social distancing, do you have the economy? Do you have the housing to social distance? What are the underlying issues that make some communities more vulnerable? We're talking about COVID and unplanned pregnancy. Are you living in an environment where you may have been forcibly raped, where you may not be able to refuse sex, where you're not able to access condoms? We can't talk about COVID in isolation. Are we protecting ourselves from respiratory diseases? What about those who have TB? Are they able to access medications? Are they able to take the preventative measures? COVID, Fahe, you talked about stockouts. HIV treatment, has COVID caused interruptions and disruptions? Were stockouts happening already? And how do we start to bundle the message so that we're not having an isolated conversation about COVID, what's come, but we're also looking at what was already existing? So I thank you both for making that call and making that plea to organizations that are doing great services, but also to government and also to other women and other change makers who have platforms. Let's think about COVID, but also let's look at 
what was existing before and how do we further advance women's equity. When we're talking about vaccine rollout, as Professor Mugela said, so many women are doing unpaid care work. What will that mean for community health workers that will be a vital part of vaccine rollout, vaccine education? How do we advocate not only for the COVID vaccine, but payment for workers who are providing invaluable services, invaluable education? How do we really make responses that are considering both the mental health of people in the community, but also the mental health of practitioners? So many women who are spending tireless hours at work um, and making huge sacrifices to their self and family to engage in this tiring and needed work um, to manage COVID as well as managing the continuing um, social and medical problems that exist. Any closing thoughts? If you could, I'd like to ask you each, if you could speak to your community and you're thinking about COVID, you're thinking about women's leadership, you're thinking about the urgency of now, what would you say to women and girls? And also, if you could speak to your government, speak to funders, what would you say around taking not only COVID forward, but taking women's health, equity, and rights to the next step? Professor Bagula, I'll start with you. My comments will be that it is time. It is time for women and girls' voices not just to be heard, but to be acted on for women and girls to have an opportunity to make a mark. Women and girls are gifted. They have phenomenal talents. Let funders, let government allow them the space to actually showcase their talents. We are seeing it, it is starting, but we need more. We need to see more women have opportunity to showcase these talents and show what can be achieved through this pandemic and through all of these other ills that are felt in the, in the community. So I'm appealing to government to make this a possibility to create a platform for women and girls to showcase what difference they can make. Thank you. Fahe? Thank you, Ebony. For me, my plea will go to governments and people in leadership. We need to safeguard women and girls. The future of these girls are in our hands. So for me, I'll just ask people to honestly be holistic about implementing laws that are there to safeguard women and girls. Right now, we're dealing with gender-based violence. Are we going to deal with femicide in the near future? These are futures of very prominent people out there. We are having lives of young girls and in teens, in teens because of pregnancies. So are we being realistic? That is a question that goes to our leaders because we cannot be dealing with femicide each day in, day out, and there's no action that is being taken. The perpetrators are walking among us. They are taken to court and they're out. For, for me, it's, a, it's just an outcry because COVID-19 is here with us. So for how long are we going to live with, with a blind eye looking at things happening and we are not taking action? So to my leaders, every leader out there, be realistic. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think you both have been loud and vivid and been clear that as we address COVID, that we need women's leadership. We need women's leadership at the community level, in our professional spaces, in our medical spaces, but we also need women's leadership in policy spaces. And we're not looking for just a vaccine. We need the vaccine. We need the health literacy. We need the investment in women who are providing work on the ground, in the communities, in the hospitals, and those that are leading change. And we need to stop and say, when we say no one gets left behind, we also want to make sure that no issues are left behind, that we're continuing our efforts on TB, that we're continuing our efforts on HIV, and that we're addressing mental health, that we're looking at the uptake of violence against women and girls and how we're responding, how we're providing supports, and how are we really looking to achieve our targets to make sure that we have a more equitable world for women that is healthy, that is safe, and where women can be free. Thank you both. Uh, B-Team Women, we appreciate you for being out there. We see more questions have been coming in. Thank you to everybody chiming in. We hear you on text, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Everybody go well and be well. Thank you both, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ebony. Thank you, Ebony.